you guys have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, why don't you guys open them up to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We've been marching through this, this book, and it's, it's uh, the book of Acts to me is such an intriguing book, and it, there's so many powerful stories you see so many miraculous things going on. And as we've gone through this journey already, we've seen God work in some really magnificent ways. You know, a few weeks ago, you know, we talked about this whole progression that, that you have these, these people who had, who had been following Jesus for three and a half years. And they'd given up everything. You know, you know, they'd moved away, they'd, they'd left businesses, they'd left their, their livelihood. I mean, they'd left family and friends. I mean, they'd, they'd left everything to follow as Jesus, you know, for three and a half years. And, and, you know, the Bible records a lot of that three and a half years. But, but you know, have you ever sat back and wondered, what, wonder what happened when about the stuff that they didn't record? You know, I mean, you think about the countless nights that they would spend around a campfire just talking. You know, and so in, in, in to be around somebody for three and a half years, there's no doubt that that can create this lengthy bond. I, I, I spent more than three and a half years in college, but I, I remember when I was in college, I had some, some friends. I would say they were good friends, but I don't know that we were good for each other. But nonetheless, we were friends. And, um, you know, one of the, I'm not a, a big, huge social media kind of guy, but I must, let me say, I'm, I'm slow to it I'm, I'm in the last year or so. And it wasn't until probably about three or four months ago that I got into Facebook because of our church Facebook page. And as a result of that, one of my, my best friends from college, who I hadn't talked to since I graduated from college, so that kind of shows you how good I am at keeping in touch with people. Um, his, his wife, and he's been boycotting Facebook too. So his wife found me on Facebook and sent me a message. And then, so then the other night, we, we were texting each other for like two hours. The guy I hadn't talked to in almost 20 years, you know? And we spent three and a half years together. And, and you know, you think about that. You, you start reflecting on those times that you spend together and the laughter and all that kind of stuff. And so these disciples, you know, they've been with Jesus for three and a half years. And then this, this constant in their life, the one they'd given up everything for, the one that they had the confidence in, you know, they, they, they had to go through this process of seeing him arrested, beaten, and killed. And, and you know, we, we can't really state this enough because so often we just, we pass through these, these passages, these thoughts, and we, we want to focus on all the nice, pretty things. But, but to just remind ourselves that these disciples, they saw all this occur. And, and for many of them, the moment that, that he dies on the cross, their hopes and their dreams died with them. And then that glorious resurrection occurs. The, 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 the time, the moment when Jesus displays that he even has power over the grave. And he conquers death and he comes back to life and, and, and he goes and he begins to find these disciples and, and they were kind of dazed, they're confused, they're kind of huddled up in their own little their groups, and they're not sure what to do. They're not sure where to go. They've, 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 lo they've lost most of everything they have, and then, boom, Jesus shows up. And now the hopes and the dreams are revitalized. And they, and they, so they start thinking again about this kingdom that's about to, to, to transpire, only to have Jesus, a few days later, ascend into heaven. 
with a promise, though, a promise that, that this, this one would come that was, was greater than him, this one that would come that would provide this power for them to, to be able to go to Jerusalem, to be able to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's this power coming in the Holy Spirit. So he commands them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. And so they do, and they wait, and they wait. And 10 days passed, and, and they're huddled up in this upper room doing what they had been doing, fellowshipping with each other, but more importantly, trying to fellowship with God in prayer. And suddenly, it changes. Suddenly, there's this, this loud noise that fills this room, the sound of a rushing wind, and these tongues of fire appear over the heads. And here we have this Holy Spirit coming upon them. This, this promise that, that Jesus had given to them had arrived. And we, if you recall, as we talked about this, this is going on during this, this time of the Feast of Pentecost. And so people have been traveling from all over to come to Jerusalem, to, to come to the temple. And they are probably in the outer court areas, and all of a sudden they start hearing this noise. They, they, they start hearing these people, this, this room filled of 120 people, begin to start talking in languages that they understood. Like foreigners in, in this country, they start hearing their own language, and, and they hear this loud rushing wind, and they understand something's going on that's not normal. And Peter steps to the forefront and begins to deliver this message. You know, really probably the first message of the church. And I love how, as you read that message, he talks about repentance, about, about turning from their, their wicked ways, about turning from sin and repenting and believing in this Jesus. And 3,000 people in one message join the church, come to know Christ. That's awesome. And, and so we begin to see this progression, and, 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 and we talked about after that how Peter and John, like, like most of them were doing, even though they weren't under this old covenant, even though uh, things had changed, they still adhered to this idea of going to the temple three times a day to pray. Morning, midday, and, noon, and at night, and they would, they, the Bible tells us they would go for an hour of prayer, and they're praying. And on their way to the temple, they, they pass through this, what they call the beautiful gate. And as they're about to pass through there, they see this lame man who, who can't walk. And this isn't something that just happened. He didn't just break his leg. He didn't just twist an ankle. But no, this is a man that we learn about later on that had been crippled for, since birth over 40 years. I'm about a month and a half from hitting 40. 40 is a big number. And this guy hadn't walked his entire life. And he's calling out, going through his whole plea that he, that he constructed for everyone who would walk by. And here Peter and John are walking by, and he's begging for money. He's just asking for something. It's the only way he can support himself. And Peter and John, and I, we talked about this before, one of my favorite parts of that first few chapters is, is it, the Bible tells us that Peter went and he looked intently into the face, into the eyes of this lame man. And he told him to do the same. And we talked about this. We, we talked about when it comes to this spiritual walk, to this spiritual journey, it's not always pretty. 
I had a conversation with a, a man um, on Friday at a lunch with, with somebody, and we talked about community. And, you know, he was saying that, you know, the hard part about community is it can get messy sometimes. You know, that it, as you get to know people more, as you get to, to know them better, it's not always pretty, Right? But part of this whole faith journey that we're on, part of being a faith family is to understand that we have to get our hands dirty. We have to get involved. And here Peter looks intently into the eyes of this lame man who's just asking for some alms for, for a few pennies. And as he looks intently into his eyes, he says, gold and silver, I have none. And I can just almost picture the countenance on this man's face changing instantly. I hear this man probably thought that he was receiving something, was going to get something, that, that maybe he could quit begging early that day. But rather now he's being told, he's being toyed with, he's being played. All I want is something and you're going to make fun of me for my situation. But then Peter, the boldness of Peter only this boldness is different than the Peter before Christ on the cross. This, this boldness turns to this man, grabs him by the hand, lifts him up, and tells him to get up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he begins to walk. And again, we're in the courtyards now of the temple, and people begin to see this ruckus going on because this guy starts walking and then it turns into cartwheels, jumping jacks, and he's shouting, screaming, all this hallelujah, praise Jesus. He's getting Pentecostal, right? I mean, he's running around. I don't, I don't know what he's doing. He's just going nuts because he's seen and experienced the power of God. And so everyone wants to know what's going on. And Peter uses this healed man as his opening illustration for sermon number two. And he preaches and he tells people about this. And he goes back to almost the same sermon. He says, listen, folks, repent and be born again. And 2,000 people accepted. 2,000 people accept Christ as their Savior. They become part of this church. And so in just a matter of a few days, the church has gone from 120 to 5,120. It has blown up. And Peter and John, um, in the midst of this whole sermon thing going on, uh, the temple guard shows up. They want to know what's going on, what's causing the ruckus. They're arrested. More than likely, the lame man was arrested with them. They're, they go before the Sanhedrin. We talk about this, and here again, again, as we're trying to understand and stay in the context of what's going on, remember, here these guys are standing in front of the same group that was on a witch hunt for Jesus Christ. Their friend, their rabbi, the one they loved, the one they left everything for, the one that they've already seen beaten, killed. And here they stand before the same group. And we see this atmosphere of persecution. And it amazes me that in the midst of a very difficult and trying time, when, when we were to, if we were to sit down and, and write a manual for, for the, the proper environment for church growth, we would not say, let's start with persecution. But yet that's what happens here. And the church grows. The last part of what we read last week, the last part of, of Acts chapter 4, we, we see 
the church again. And Acts 4, 32 through 37 is almost a repeat of Acts 2, 42, kind of the end of, of Acts chapter 2. And in this passage, Luke, who wrote, who wrote Acts, stresses this idea that there was this such great unity in the people and this new church. Even as they're growing, there's this, there's this dynamic unity. There's this um, tremendous generosity. Last week, we, kind of, we talked about three different types of generosity. One, there was this, they were generous in, in their gifts, in their resources, in their finances, to the point where these people began selling properties. So they could give, and it said in, in, in Acts that they laid at the apostles' feet. So they could distribute it to those who were in need. And not only did they just have this great amount of generosity with, with their finances, with their resources, but they had this generosity in their testimony. I mean, they went around, they were telling people about what was going on. They were, they were telling those in, in the neighborhood, they were telling their neighbors, they were telling people about this life change, about what Jesus had done in their lives. And then they were generous in their grace. There was this great power of grace. You know, we, if you got a bulletin today, in the back of that bulletin, we have our core values. And it, those core values, again, I, I want to reemphasize, it wasn't like I just sat down one day and let's think of a few catchy phrases and pop a picture on it and boom, that's who we are. We prayed about those things. And you can see a lot of our core values fleshed out in this particular passage. The idea of being committed to the uncommitted. The uncommitted being those who don't know Christ. In order for us to really be committed to those people, that means we need to go and tell them about Jesus. We need to be generous with our resources so we can have other people go alongside around the world to fulfill the Great Commission. One of our other core values is that we're grounded in grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that for by grace we are saved. So if we've been saved by God's grace, then the least we can do is extend grace to others. And so we see all this amazing stuff going on. And, and as we've seen, even the outside persecution arriving, the church is blossoming. We see all this great, amazing stuff going on in the church. But then today we have to take a time out from the rose petals and gumdrops. And we look at kind of a tough story. We look at a situation that isn't always comforting. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read, we're going to read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do something. So here we go. Acts chapter 5 it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 4, while it remained unsold, it did not remain, did it not remain your, your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. 
and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this morning, as we just spend a few moments looking into your word, God, I, I pray that you help us to understand the, the story that we just read. Help us to understand this passage. Lord, help us not to misrepresent this. Help us not take this out of context. Help us not to add anything to it. But Lord, this is a very dynamic story. It was an event that, that caused fear within this newfound church. This is something serious, God. And sometimes I I, I fear even in my own life that as I read your word, as we read these stories, that we can become so familiar with these stories that that we almost feel like they're fairy tales and not facts. So Lord, this morning, I pray that you help us to see your word. I pray that you make it alive in our lives. Lord, I pray that you penetrate us, that you soften our hearts, open our eyes, and prepare our minds. Lord, I pray that every single one of us, myself included, leaves church today different than we arrived. God, I pray that you give me your words, give me your heart, give me your passion. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you act like a wrecking ball today. It's in your son's beautiful and precious in the holy name, we pray. Amen. So we have this event. We didn't talk much last week about it, but if you go back a, a verse or two previously, at the very end of, of Acts chapter 4, there are new characters presented. His name's Joseph, but he earns this nickname called Barnabas, the son of encouragement. This is the first time Barnabas is, is mentioned here in Acts and, and won't be the last. He's actually mentioned 25 times in this book, five times later in the epistles. And what's highlighted here is, is you have this, this man, Barnabas, who, who had such a generous spirit that he took some of this land that he had, he sold it, and he gave it. This is an amazing thing. And, and, and to us today, there might be a little bit of a disconnect even in our culture versus the culture back then. Um, back in this time, like land meant a lot to a family. I mean, you go back even to the Old Testament, you go back into Genesis when, when God's giving Abraham all these promises. He didn't promise them just, um, just a family, just children, but, but there's this promise of this land. And so during this time period, a, a land for, to a great extent was a, someone's inheritance. You know, so, so when you were given land, that was something that had been in the family for generations. 
And so just the idea of going and selling something, it was more than just selling something. Here you are, you're selling something that had probably been in your family for a long time. It was something that was part of your inheritance that, that theoretically would have been passed along to your children. But yet they were so wrapped up in this idea of helping, of being generous to those around them, that this, this, this spirit had permeated the church and these people. And so, so he goes and he does this. Sometimes um, people will take this and begin to, to twixt, twist um, the Bible and to, to, to use it to show that this is a form of communism. And to a certain extent, I suppose it is, except the great difference is this was voluntary. They were not told they had to go do this. This was not the idea that what's yours is mine. It was more the idea of what's mine is yours. It's a choice that we're freely making. And so uh, Barnabas does, and he, he goes and does this, and, and he's mentioned here. The next, you flip the page or you go the next verse or two down, you get to this other story, and here we have another gift being presented. Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know much about Ananias and Sapphira. We can go and, and we can look at their names. Uh, Sapphira means beautiful. Ananias meant God is gracious. This is one of the... St- Strange times, a lot of times as you read scripture and you look at someone's name, the biblical name, you can see how it plays out in their life. But here we don't see that. Because <laughs> what they do is far from beautiful. They go and, and um, they sell some land. And then they go and they give this money to the apostles. They, they, they show up and they're not together when it occurs, I don't know what it's like. I, this is long before the old song, I Surrender All, was played. But I, in my mind, as I considered this situation, you know, maybe they're towards the end of the service and, 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 and Ananias, you know, they're, they're doing the altar call. And he probably looks around to make sure everyone's looking. And he comes down and he lays the money at Peter's feet. And probably expecting a big smile, maybe a pat in the back round of applause by the people to say, man, how gracious, how great you are. Man, you are just like Barnabas. You are, you, are, you are such an encouragement to all these people. But that's not what happens. Peter looks at him and begins to ask him these questions. See, one of the things that we need to be very careful as we consider this passage, see, Ananias didn't get judged because he didn't give all of his money to the church. Ananias gets judged because he lied. What we see in this passage, I believe, in these 11 verses is the sin of hypocrisy. See, Ananias and his wife Sapphira wanted the same accolades of Barnabas. Peter says to him, listen, it was your land. You didn't have to sell it if you didn't want to. I mean, you didn't have to give it. If you wanted to give us part of the money, or if you wanted to sell it and keep all the money you're saying, that was fine. It was your money. That's not the problem. The problem is you're trying to make yourself to be something that you're not. As I read this passage and I consider what's going on, I think if we're all willing to do a, a serious self-evaluation, I mean, if we're all willing to seriously look in the mirror, I think this, this passage, maybe more so than any that we've read yet in the book of Acts. It should be convicting. The idea of, of hypocrite, it's an old word, and, and during this time period, 
It was a name given to an actor. See, these actors would go and they would put on these large masks to play a character in, this, in a play. It would be a large mask that's that large enough so the person in the back could see and identify what's going on. And the idea was it was, it was a fake. It wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. It, wasn't, it was a false persona. When we go through the Gospels and we look at, at Jesus and the way he interacted with people, this is what's so amazing. Jesus hung out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Right? Jesus hung out with the publicans. He hung out with the, with, he would get his hands dirty. He didn't have a problem being around those types of people. Who did he have the issues with? In the Gospels, it was the Pharisees, wasn't it? Because they were being hypocrites. They were, they were saying something. They were acting one way, but doing something differently. Remember the story when, when there's this woman caught in adultery. And they, they, they want to trap Jesus and it's this, this test again, but they're going to use this girl as bait. It was, she was completely set up and she had sinned. No one's saying that she didn't sin, but they were ready to stone her. And the Bible tells us that, that Jesus knelt down and began drawing something in the sand. I have no idea what it was. A lot of commentators like to say that, that he got down and he began to write the sins of those people who were trying to judge her. See, in our own lives, you know, hypocrisy is a kind of a crazy thing. Like we have sin in our life. We all do. And rather than identifying the sin, rather than dealing with the sin, rather than giving that sin over to God, rather than repenting, we sit back and we try and find sin in other people's lives. And then we want to analyze their sin so we're not on the hook anymore. We have our own secret sins. For this, in this particular case, here we have a secret sin that, that Ananias and Sapphira were doing that only, they thought only they knew. Like nobody else knows about what's going on. We can hide this from everybody. It reminds me, if you go back in the Old Testament in Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, the, the, the people have been wandering for over 40 years. And Joshua is about to lead the people into the promised land. They, they cross over the Jordan, and all of a sudden, they're, they're met with Jericho, this big city. I mean, it, it looked like it was something bigger than they could handle. You guys remember the whole deal? They marched around the city and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, eventually, the city falls, and, and the, the Israelites are able to overcome Jericho. God gives them one order. He says, listen, don't take anything. Don't plunder the city. Leave it as is. This, use this as a sacrifice to me. They all do that except for one. Achan. Achan goes and he takes a few things. You go to the next chapter, um, Joshua chapter 7. They go and they're going to fight this little city, a little town. Um, something that even as Joshua's making plans, he's holding back some of his military force because it should have been such an easy task. And they're creamed. They're defeated. Joshua goes back and the Bible tells us he starts, he's on his hands and his knees. He's crying out to God, trying to figure out what it is. Um, Joshua, I think it's 7 verse 10, Jesus, or God tells um, Joshua to get up, get off your face, get up. They're sinning your country. They're sinning your land. They're sinning your people. Here's the deal. Like our sin affects other people. Our sin, my sin. My sin will have an effect on you. Just like yours has an effect on me. And as we try and hide these sins, it just feeds into this Addiction. You guys know probably the number one excuse why people won't come to a church is they'll say that their people are hypocrites. 
You know, one of the things that I routinely will have, if, if I meet with somebody who, maybe it's a, a visitor who has come, someone's been out of the church for a while, almost definitely more times than not, when we start having a conversation, typically it comes back to, I was hurt at a church. And sometimes those hurts were five, ten years ago, and they still can't commit to a church. There's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of church, a, a truth in that the church is filled with hypocrites because, folks, we all are. A lot of us, we work so hard to portray ourselves as something that we're truly not. Here, here's the deal. As I, as I was thinking about this, this idea of hypocrisy, hypocrisy kills. I, I think it kills us in three ways. I think, one, it, it kills us. It kills our testimony. Right? When, when, we, when we do act as hypocrites, and we, we, we make it appear on Sunday morning that everything in our lives is, is good, that we're these good, great Christian people. And then Monday morning, we're at the office, and it's something completely different. It kills our testimony, doesn't it? Not only does it kill our testimony, though, it kills our joy. I mean, we can't find joy. We can't understand um, Psalms 103, 14. Listen, this is what's awesome. I write this maybe in on the passage there on the headline. But in Psalms 103, 14, we understand this, that, that the Father knows our frames. Meaning this, he knows us. He knows all the good. He knows all the bad. And the unfortunate thing with hypocrisy is we spend all this time trying to make everybody else think we're something that we're not. And the sin is not so much against other people, but it's a sin against God. But we think we can keep hiding these things. We think we can keep pretending like, like everything's amazing. I mean, guys, I, I, I remember not too long ago, there was this a website thing that, that, came, that broke out. Ashley Madison. A, a website that was created with the idea of promoting affairs in secret. Somebody hacked into it, got everyone's personal information out, and then released it. I had heard that within a week of all that stuff coming out, that over 800 pastors had to resign. Um, when it comes to hypocrisy, I'm going to be the first to, to tell you guys this. Some of the biggest hypocrites in the church are the ones who stand behind a pulpit. That's something I'm not proud of. I want you guys, as you're looking at me, probably one of the biggest hypocrites in the room is the one you're looking at. We all want people to think we're these really righteous, really religious people. One of, the, one of my biggest issues and gripes, I think, with things like Facebook is we'll plant all this stuff on Facebook to appear like our family is pristine, is perfect, as if we have everything right, like our marriage is amazing. Like we'll post every picture of our date night so everyone thinks like everything's awesome when it's not. Because well, life is hard, guys. It's challenging. There is no perfect marriage. Now, I'm still trying to figure out how to raise kids, and I screw it up daily. Thanks for the amen. <laughs> Glad you're watching. <laughs> right? But I mean, it's hard. It's challenging, guys. But, but here's the deal. One of the biggest, one of the worst things that we can do, though, is pretend like we have everything under control. One of the things that we talk about so much here is a faith family, that we are a faith family. 
And if we're a true, genuine faith family, then we ought to be or strive to be authentic, be real. Like we don't have to put on fancy clothes to pretend like we get it. Like you don't have to put a verse from Beth Moore Bible study deal on Facebook so everyone thinks that you're doing some type of study. Not that those who do aren't. But, but what happens is in our lives, we work so hard to create this persona that we miss out on the joy of life. We miss out here on the peace because what we're doing is we're telling God that we're not good enough, that he can't love us enough. We're going to build a false empire. I have to be honest with you. As you look at this passage, I have to admit that I'm thankful that God doesn't necessarily act in the same manner today as he did there. If he did, my suspicion would be our church would be significantly smaller. And I'm sure he would have struck me down several times from the pulpit. And some people have a, a hard time with this passage because they read this and like, well, where's the grace? Where, where is God's grace in this? Because if, if a loving God, how can a loving God not even give him a chance to repent, a chance to change? And God's giving us a very clear lesson here. Just like what he gave Joshua and the Israelites back there, as they're about to go into this new land, as they're about to, to go and create a new home. He's saying, listen, guys, be real, be genuine, no lies. This is important. Here we have the church is not a new land, but it's this new family that's being built. And he gives this very strong lesson for us to consider. This morning, I hope that we seriously look in that mirror, that we quit trying to play this game, that we understand our lives are messy, and so is everybody else's. Not that we encourage the mess to continue, not that we celebrate the sin, but we just get right and we get real. Because guys, if we're going to fake it, if we're going to pretend if we're going to constantly have these walls built around us, then in all honesty, what kind of community will we ever be able to build? What kind of family will we ever be able to build? It's all going to be built on some fake belief. Romans 3.23 tells us that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. I love verses like that in the Bible because when you read that, it's a level playing field. Like in one swoop and one verse, Jesus says, listen, you guys have all sinned. So quit trying to make his sin bigger than yours. Quit trying to act like this person. Quit trying to be this. Listen, you've all sinned. Romans 5, 8 says, in that while we were yet sinners... While we're still messed up, while we're still doing these bad things, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. That's, that's where we see the love of God. That's where we see the grace of God. And that while we're still doing these bad things, while we're still running, while we're still doing the exact same things that Ananias and Sapphira did, while we're doing all that, he loved us and died for us. First John 
1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I, I have had times in my own life where there have been secret sins. You work so hard to keep those sins secret. Some of the most freeing times in my life, though, is when the secret's found out. In the moment, no. <laughs> in the moment, it might be embarrassment, might be fear, whatever. But when you no longer have to carry the burden of hiding it, and you can turn it over to God, and you can get the help and the accountability and for that to go alongside you, you can begin to see genuine, true life change. Uh, one of my favorite verses, khaki, um, from the book of James, James 1.27, says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, we sometimes can create this perception of what religion is. And oftentimes that perception is unattainable. And so we mimic other people, do these things. And I love in that verse right there when, he, when James breaks it down and says, listen, this is what real religion is. And he doesn't talk anything there about selling all this stuff and doing all these things and all these, leading all these Bible studies and memorizing all these things and, and, and all, doing all these programs. None of that's mentioned there. We look at that. But then as I read that, this passage, as I read Ananias and Sapphira, one of the, the verses that like leaps out to me is one of those verses that you, that you struggle so much with. And I guess sometimes, again, when it comes to hypocrisy, I, if I'm not careful, I can begin to think of it. And I, as I read it, I think of other names. I think of it as other faces. But Galatians 6, 7, write down Galatians 6, 7 on your notes or on the side of the thing. But it says, like this, it says this, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that's what he's going to reap. That's hard to swallow. See, because in our lives, we only want to consider, we only want to think about the good things. As we enter this holiday season, again, Jesus can become nothing more than a glorified Santa Claus. And then when we read tough passages like this, and when we read about his judgment, we so quickly turn and say, well, that's not fair. This is what I have come to realize. He's the creator I'm the created. I can't pick and choose what's fair and what's not fair. As the one that was created, I'm not the one that can make the rules. He does. And he has every right to. And the unfortunate thing with hypocrisy is that it hurts us and those around us. So this morning, I, I, I hope and I pray that we today Almost for a moment, grab a hold of that last verse. You're saying, Chad, well, that doesn't make sense because usually when we want to leave church, we want to leave like really excited and praising Jesus. Yeah, we, we, we hopefully will leave praising Jesus. But I hope fear for a moment grabs us. That fear in our life, fear in our, 
our, our faith, now that we're doubting him, but we understand what's at stake. If we say that we're following Jesus, are we really doing that? Quit playing games. Quit acting like we're something different. Quit hiding stuff and just be who you are and let God change you. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I pray, Holy Spirit, that you work. Uh, First, God, I pray that you work in my life. Um, I, I pray that you show me areas of my life where I am a hypocrite. Show me areas in my life that I'm holding back from you. Lord, I pray that you change us. Help us to be real. Help us to be authentic. Help us to quit playing games, to to quit trying to dress ourselves up, to pretend like everything is great when it's crumbling around us. The truth, Lord, is that you show your love and you show your grace by not letting us continue in that. And when it gets hard, when it gets, when we get caught, when we get found out, that's your love showing us that, okay, let's go forward. Let's change. So Lord, this morning, I want to pray two things. Lord, if there's some in here that are battling some secret sins, doesn't matter what they are. Doesn't matter if it's a quote-unquote large sin or a small sin, but, but Lord, if there's some in here that are battling these secret sins, God, I pray that you give them the strength to repent, to change, to give it to you. It may involve having to tell somebody. You don't have to broadcast it to the whole church, but it, it may involve having to tell a spouse or a friend, saying, listen, I'm struggling with this. I'm so sorry. I need your help. And Lord, maybe there's some here this morning that, that are here and would just would say, I, it's, my, my sin's not secret. Like, I, it's all over the place. And the reality is, I'm, I'm not even a believer. I've never accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. But I pray that today's the day that you call them. I pray that today's the day that they're willing to put everything aside. They're willing to get rid of all the excuses of, of uh, church being nothing but hypocrites or, 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 or whatever hurts have happened in the past, but, but you allow that today be the day they confess their sins with their mouth and they find forgiveness in you. So Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted and give us the strength to respond in the ways that we need to respond. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.